Good evening, everybody. Congratulations on completing day one. I think everybody's still here. So uh, I came across a poem last, uh, last week that I want to uh, start the talk with tonight. And uh, it's called New York Subway. The beauty of people in the subway that evening, Saturday, holding the door for whoever was slower or left behind, even with all that Saturday night excitement, and the high school boys from Queens boasting, joking together proudly in their expectations and power, young frolicsome bulls that they are, and the three office girls, each strangely beautiful, the Indian with dark skin and the girl with her hair cut very short and fringed like Joan at the stake, the corners of her mouth laughing, and the black girl, delicate as a doe, dark brown in pale brown clothes, and the tall woman in the long caftan the other day, serene and serious. And the Puerto Rican holding the door for more than three minutes for the feeble, crippled, hunched little man who could not raise his head, whose hand I held to help him into the subway car. So we were joined in helping him. And someone seeing us gives up his seat learning from us what we had learned from each other. It's a poem by Hilda Morley and it touches on the mysterious and beautiful diversity of this creation we've all been born into. And it also touches on the natural, spontaneous, compassionate response that we often see around us and feel within us. It's really a, respon a response that's inherent in all of us. So I wanted to begin with that, with that poem. It has a kind of beauty, strangers coming together and reacting, offering from the heart, much like our community. So here we are, practicing this meditation thing, learning, you know, all the wherefores and whys of it. And some of you have probably spent this first day with the mind just hurtling in all directions like a squirrel on meth, you know. And some of you maybe spent today in a kind of sleepy haze, you know, only occasionally kind of coming up out of the foggy goo for a few moments of clarity. But whatever, whatever this day held for you, it's all workable and it's all okay. And so as we kind of launch the, the good ship, you know, a meditation retreat, uh, there's going to be all kinds of experiences uh, throughout this week, like restlessness, like sleepy, you know, sleepiness. And other energies will be arising too. Some could actually be restful, restorative, beautiful, peaceful, etc. But all of them, and this is one of the main points of my talk tonight, that all the energies that you experience, all of them, even the challenging ones, deserve your acceptance, your understanding, and actually your appreciation. So tonight I want to offer that perspective on practice that I, that I hope will allow you to experience maybe a little more ease and maybe a little more affection for yourself. And by extension, affection for others. Even as you 
earnestly and ardently and courageously cultivate your heart-mind this week through thick and thin. So let's look at these energies, some of these energies that you'll encounter. And uh, we'll, we'll put them in a perspective and hopefully it will tweak some of your long-held beliefs on these energies. And they're not just energies in our meditation practice. These are energies in life that we're required to, to come to relationship with. So this morning you were given these instructions. Tara gave these clear instructions on how to meditate. Kind of simple. But they're not so easy to carry out. There's all kinds of different energies that kind of rise up and flower as we're sitting there just trying to find our breath. And so they, they're, they're challenging they challenge us to, you know, to come into a, an awakened presence. They're, they're a challenge to that. And in Pali, which is a language spoken in northern India around the time of the Buddha, actually, I've just recently learned it may not even have been a spoken language, but that's when it originated. Uh, they talk about these energies, and they call them nivarana is the word. And it literally means coverings or that which veils your ability to see clearly. I like to simply refer to them as challenging energies. Sometimes like to refer to them as supportive friends and even limbic lovers. And I'll, I'll explain that a little more as we go along. And usually they're broken out into five categories, and many of you have heard them. There's wanting or lust, the wanting mind, grasping for things out there. There's aversion, basically the non-wanting mind. And under that umbrella, we've got anger, fear, guilt, shame, and some others. There's restlessness, restlessness and worry. There's sleepiness and dullness classically referred to as sloth and torpor, two great words, sloth and torpor. Some of you have experienced that today. I know it from the groups you've told me. And doubt. So there's some, these are addressed in various places in the Pali Canon, which are the written discourses of the Buddha, actually written down hundreds of years after his teaching career was over. So I want to just read you a little, uh, a little portion of that where it kind of addresses these energies. This heart-mind, O monks, is luminous, but it is covered by adventitious visitors. The uninstructed worldling does not understand this as it really is. Therefore, for her, there is no mental development. This heart-mind, O monks, is luminous, but it is free from adventitious visitors. The instructed noble disciple understands this as it really is. Therefore, for her, there is mental development. So in that passage, mental development refers to the cultivation of both the heart and mind. And in Pali, there's one word for heart and mind, citta. It's a kind of unified concept. They're so intertwined. So mental development, according to that stance, is the cultivation of the heart-mind. And that, and that has two kind of main aspects to it. It's first the ability to gather the energies of the heart-mind together in a concentrated way, uh, or bring them into samadhi, which is really the proper term. There's, it's a bright, powerful unification of these energies. And then to utilize those, those, those collected energies to see more clearly into the nature of things, to see into the nature of nature, see into our life and relationships, see into all the aspects of this amazing, mysterious creation we've been cast into, see how it all works. And that's wisdom. And at the same time, 
this, this mental development, this cultivation of heart-mind, has to do with creating a relationship with all in this creation that is compassionate and loving. Cultivating a greater loving intimacy of all creation. I think we call this intimacy with life. Do we still call it that? We do. Yeah. Been calling that for years. And it seems truer every time I think of it. And another part of this passage points to something which is important. Uh, that the heart-mind is luminous. By its very nature, the, the heart-mind is not dark, murky, dull, turbulent. It's filled with a shining, open, non-conceptual intelligence and a deep tranquility. The, the natural mind, this luminous, natural, this radiant mind, has a knowing quality and is essentially unruffled by anything. It has the capacity to hold everything, good, bad, and the very ugly. So, but the, as the Buddha said, this natural perfected heart-mind is visited by advantageous or challenging energies. And that's our challenge as practitioner. How do we come into relationship with these? And it's important to remember that these energies that come up, and sometimes very powerful, powerfully, and they obscure this connection, this, this felt sense of that unstained natural heart-mind, those energies are not anything inherent or permanent in our mind. They're just visitors. They pass through, they cause whatever effects they're going to cause, but they're not part of the fabric of the heart-mind in any way. They're not you, just visitors. Just like the weather. We use that metaphor all the time. Weather changes and comes to us in various ways, various strengths. You know, from the very, very kind of, we use a kind of calm mist, you know, to rain, sleet, and snow, to cyclones, tsunamis, earthquakes. You know, all in some way challenged by that weather, challenging our perspective and our equanimity. These same forces, similar forces come up within us. So these energies, they naturally arise. But why? Why? If, if as the Buddha tells us, this, this heart-mind is unstained, it's radiant purity there, why are we having all these energies of anger and fear and lust and wanting this and sleepiness and doubt? The case I want to make tonight is that we're having them. It's, it's a byproduct of the organism loving itself. Mysterious, mysterious primal energies that, that arise out of the deep subconscious from the primitive parts of the brain, but they're forces designed to ensure your survival. Visiting energies whose very deepest intention is one of loving care attempting in their own way to provide you with comfort, avoid pain, protect you, connect you with others, and basically guarantee your survival forever. That's their intention. Now, these energies are sometimes misguided, and they don't really have a broad wisdom. I mean, they're driven by survival. And if, we, and, and if you follow them, and become enslaved to them, well, that's just going to increase your suffering. But I've found over the years that holding them as lovers and allies, albeit 
misguided lovers and allies is the way to go with these energies, with these forces. If you hold the energies of wanting, lust, anger, fear, guilt, restlessness, worry, doubt, you know, if you hold them as some kind of an enemy that must be defeated, it just sets you up for internal strife, internal warfare, fragmentation, and in the worst cases, self-loathing. A little later, I'll point out where the love is in each of those five categories of energy. I mean, there were times in my early practice, and probably occasionally now, if I'm honest with myself, uh, where it seems like all these energies are active at once. Wanting, aversion, restlessness, sleepiness, and doubt all happening at the same time. Sounds impossible. I can remember early on trying to meditate and, and wanting this or that. My favorite food wasn't there. That you know the place wasn't set up. My room was too funky or whatever it was. When I wanted these certain things, I didn't have access to the sports section. I wanted that, you know. And then I'd get angry towards the person sitting next to me or people around me. Oh, they're sniffling. They're coughing. They're moving too much. They're zipping and unzipping their jacket. It's driving me crazy. Don't they know that I'm here to get enlightened? You know, they just don't don't get it. And at the same time, you know, um, I got all this restlessness going, and my mind is kind of dull and sleepy. And then I, then, I, then I begin to doubt, doubt my capacity for doing this, doubt the teachers for what they're saying. What is this Dharma stuff? It doesn't do anything for anybody. Look at the world. It's a mess. You know, so all these things happening at once, a kind of a multiple challenging energy experience. Some of you might have had a little taste of that today. So, But all these energies are completely workable. There's nothing to be afraid of. Your basic mindfulness practice supports your capacity to be with them skillfully. The simple activity of coming back in a kindly manner and resting in your direct experience. Because in, in the moment that you notice that one of these energies is up, wanting, aversion, whatever it might be, you... At at that very moment, have changed your relationship to it. There's a magic in the mindfulness there where, where we actually know what's going on. Because at that moment, we're not lost in it. We're not submerged in it. We're not identified by it. It's like, oh, look at this. I'm angry, or whatever it is. And it brings a little healthy detachment, a little healthy spaciousness into the relationship at that time with what's really happening in your life. And as you develop a continuity of mindfulness, just a little, just a little stability of heart-mind, the elements of a concentrated heart-mind, this developing samadhi, it, it has the ability to naturally relax every one of these five powerful energies. You're sitting here just doing this simple practice, little by little, but down in the weeds, there's some amazing stuff that's going on that's helping to cool some of the fires of these energies automatically by doing simple mindfulness practice. There's there's five elements to samadhi, a gathered, powerful, bright, concentrated mind. There's five elements to it. So I'll, I'll briefly go through them and I'll, and I'll point to how they cool each of these energies. The, the first element of concentration or, or, or samadhi is uh, the aiming and connecting with our object, whether it's the breath, the sound, it's that moment of connection. Now when I ring this bell, connect with the sound as I ring it. In that moment, there's a wakefulness, a brightness. You know, 
sleepiness is gone when we connect with our object. In that moment, we're there, connected. And of course, there's different levels of sleepiness. Most of us are chronically underslept. You come here, you're tired, and then there's the, the biorhythm sleepiness. Each of us has our more active, alive time of the day. Other times we're a little more sleepy. But a more interesting type of sleepiness uh, is called sinking mind. That's when there's a pretty good steadiness of mind, but the energy isn't quite up to speed. It's like there's brownout conditions. You're kind of mindful, but the lights are dim. You're there, but not, it's not crisp. And from up here in the beginning of the retreat, it's expected that there will be a sea of bobbleheads out there. <laughs> you know, everybody arrives and it's this, you know. And of course, if you open your eyes and look up here, that might also be happening here. And sometimes a good whiplash will kind of bring some alertness, but other times you're just going to go back into the fog, you know. So, and at these times, and, and the Pali word is the vataka, you know, that connection, it just isn't juiced enough. The balance is sometime, some, somehow off between the, the, the calming and the energetic factors of the heart-mind. But if sleepiness in meditation is, becomes chronic, and we don't know that on the first day, maybe day five, then we start investigating. You know, it could be there's a life out of balance or a resistance to some emotions, uh, challenging emotions that need to be felt through and further digested. Maybe there's feelings of loneliness, sorrow, emptiness, loss of control, whatever it might be that need our attention. Another way to look at sloth and torpor it's, is, is not being alive to what's happening right now. It can be a life kind of, in, in life it can be kind of waiting for things to start, to happen, waiting for the next jolt of stimulus. Uh, many folks are uh, experienced junkies. And as you meditate, it takes time to get used to the subtle experiences of, of, of meditation, those subtle, very subtle experiences that we often don't have in our awareness. And so there might be a tendency to doze off between uh, intense emotions or intense physical sensations. But the more you meditate, the more you start to connect with those more subtle experiences. Now the second element of samadhi is called vichara. And that's sustaining that connection. And if we're using the bell as a metaphor, it's kind of listening to the sustain. The sustaining capacity um, counteracts doubt, cools doubt. Because by sustaining awareness long enough to become intimate with our subject, there's no opportunity in that interested connection for confusion and uncertainty to take hold in the heart and mind and cloud things out. Now, doubt's the most insidious of, of these energies. When it takes hold, it generally is pretty logical. And skillful doubt is part of discernment. It's an aspect of wisdom. So it's easy to get confused when we're doubting. Is this wisdom? What's going on here? I mean, no one wants to live their life, life like a fool believing everything that is told to them. I mean, you know, that's not going to work out very well. So doubt is definitely a part of wisdom. But on the other hand, running off on these long, elaborate thought streams of doubt is going to paralyze your practice. It, it, it will do that. So if you're being barraged by thoughts of, 
oh, I'm wasting my time. I don't know what they're talking about. That these people aren't making sense. And maybe they are making sense, but this isn't for me. Other people can do this, but I'm too messed up. I can't, I can't do this. You know, the, the energy gets pulled when we get sucked along in one of those trains. Here's a, a little story. A nun came to the abbess complaining that doubt was her primary challenge on the Buddhist path. She had doubt about the path itself, about the teachings, about the teachers, and most importantly about her own ability to succeed in the Buddhist practice. Your problem, said the abbess, is that you don't doubt enough. If you are going to the trouble of doubting, then continue your doubting, but do it more thoroughly. Please, also doubt your doubt. Doubt your doubt. And it's amazing how helpful that actually can be. Having all these swarm of doubt, it's like, well, is this true? Should I believe this? You know? I mean, we don't have to believe every bit of mind debris that comes floating through. Floating through, We just don't. Okay, so the third, now the third element of samadhi for a concentrated heart-mind is piti. When your mind gets concentrated, like for just a while, there may be uh, an arising or there will be an arising of what is described as rapture and joy to either a lesser extent or a greater extent. And in its greater extent, it is more rapturous physically and mentally than an orgasm by many times. It can be that powerful when samadhi is cultivated to that degree. But of course, we don't even mind the light stuff, just feeling, okay, good. So that's... That is the result, the, the fruit, which happens very quickly in a meditation practice, that there is this piti arising. And then it moves into, and it almost, a lot, of, a lot of teachers believe that sukha, which is the fourth element of samadhi, is really arising simultaneous with piti. And other teachers are saying, no, you can tell the difference. Sukha is a kind of contentment a sweet contentment that comes over uh, the heart, mind, the body. It's not quite as, you know, energetic, rapturous, but it's very beautiful in its own right. In fact, I named my dog Sukha. It took me a while to name her, but she is so calm and so sweet, um, and she has this air of peacefulness around her. Sometimes she's used as a therapy dog. So when sukha has arisen in the mind, the mind kind of settles down. You'll notice there's no obsessive planning or agitation. There's contentment. You know, there's no restlessness or worry. Temporarily, it's gone. There's a feeling of okayness. Settling in more deeply, the mind is content. You're just delighted in the present experience, whatever it is, the simplest thing. An ant crawling on a leaf of grass. Anything, you know. And as the heart-mind becomes even more settled, more gathered, you experience the fifth element of samadhi, the flowering of ikagata, which is the unification of the mind. With a focused one-pointedness of mind, there is no wanting anything. Want, the wanting mind is temporarily extinguished. No sense of deficiency. Desire is completely absent. Kaput. Ekagata is synonymous with equanimity. You could say you kind of move from the contented sweetness of sukha into the coolness of ikagata, deep equanimity. So at this point, there's a strong unification of the mind and all those challenging energies are temporarily relaxed. Asleep, so to speak, for the time being. 
So this basic mindfulness practice that you do is actually beginning to work on all these challenging energies kind of down in the weeds. You might not notice them or you might notice some, ple- you know, some pleasant sensations coming here and there of various degrees. But when these energies are up, they are up. So what to do? What are some helpful ways of working with them? What can you do when you're sitting here and you get this wave of wanting, lust, or aversion, some form of hate, or feelings of wanting revenge, or there's fear, or restlessness, worry, you know, or you get totally sleepy and you know you're not sleepy and then, and then you're hit by doubt. There's some general methods that we like to offer uh, for your consideration. And one of them that many of you have heard is um, we use the acronym RAIN, R-A-I-N, okay? And so the R is just the first, the recognition of what's happening and receiving what is happening. There's a recognition and a kind of open-handed receiving of it. A soft, receptive quality. And also, I want to add in here a recognition of the supportive intent of that energy. A recognition of the supportive intent of that energy. For instance, maybe we notice that fear is up. We have the simple knowing, oh, this is fear. And we can receive it with a little extra understanding. A little extra knowing. That fear is trying to protect you from danger in some way. It's just a subtle change in perspective. A little extra softness and understanding for the intent of fear. And if, say, it's wanting or there's great lust is up for you, you see somebody across the room, oh, they are the one, you know. Now, the softening perspective on the wanting mind, that, that your organism is trying to bring you what's needed, either for comfort or connection in some way, if your object of wanting is another person. That's kind of sweet. Now, if restlessness and worry is up and you're all agitated, a a softening perspective on what's going on is that this thinking and planning, trying to line everything up, is designed for your endless survival. This organism wants you to live forever. It's, of course, a little crazy, but that's what it wants to do. That's what it's trying to do. And so, if you're overwhelmed by sloth and torpor, there's this sleepiness. A softening perspective on that is, is, you know, that, that that energy may be trying to protect you from feeling something that's difficult. Okay, it's a little misguided and it doesn't really incorporate the healing, but, but the organism is trying to like make our life easy for us. Oh, I don't want you to feel that. Let's just fall asleep. So its intention is a kind of misguided care for us. And if doubt has arisen, a softened perspective on that is that, hey, I don't want to be fooled by anything. It's better to like paralyze the whole system, pull the energy plug, than to make the wrong move. So I'm just going to feel all this doubt and I'm just not going to do this and I'm just going to sit here like, ugh. So the R of RAIN, recognize and receive. Then there's the A, accepting and allowing what is happening. And more than that, I want to also add in a little appreciation for these energies. Just feeling for just a moment that this organism is having this care for itself. Let's call it a moment of limbic love in that deep survival part of the the brain. 
Here, I want to get you some comfort. Here, I want to connect you with something. Here, I don't want you to feel anything uncomfortable. So with A, you're accepting, allowing, whatever it is to come up, roll through like the weather. Today's weather's here. It wasn't like it was a few days ago. It won't be like it is going to be tomorrow, the next day. It's, it, the A is, is really a radical non-interference with the flow of, of life. Just allowing it to be what it is. It's a non-resistance to phenomena. And that little moment of appreciation of these subtle energies that are trying to protect us in their sweet but misguided way. Then there's the I, R-A-I, becoming intimate or investigating with a kindly manner. You recognize what's going on, you accept it, you turn toward it, and, and that takes some courage sometimes if it's, if it's powerful and unpleasant. So then exploring, looking, feeling into, the, in, into this phenomena, watching it, watching it flower, watching it pass away, embodying it through this whole process, feeling it in the body, and without pushing or pulling on it, as best you're able. In becoming intimate with experience, you're learning about maybe the maybe one of the very core teachings, or certainly one of the very core teachings of, of Dharma, and that's the impermanence of all phenomena the insubstantiality of all phenomena, the impersonal nature of it all. It's not you. It's just stuff coming and going, arising and passing. So that's the I, the investigation, and and the coming into intimacy with the experience. And finally, the end. The end kind of happens mostly by itself. Non-identification or non-ownership. It's the wisdom understanding of the selfless nature of phenomena, of this creation. And then it's the wisdom understanding that an aspect of being human is experiencing lust, fear, guilt, shame, the whole deal. And that these challenging energies are trying to protect and comfort you. And that they are just passing phenomena rolling on. They're not I or mine. So that's the N, not identified. It's really the razor's edge of practice. It's what we're all endeavoring to do. Experience fully, really fully embodied, fully present, but not lost and identified. So a couple of a couple of things have been helpful to me over the years in 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 uh, in kind of working with these energies. Rain is is a big one, and it really encompasses almost the, the whole practice. But one is the habit of withdrawing energy from the object uh, of whatever you've become stuck on and bring it back to the direct experience of what's going on inside. You know, I'm, I'm sitting at home, I have deadlines, I'm working on the computer, I'm doing some work, trying to get some of this out, kind of clear the path. But without thinking, I find myself running off to checking the latest sports news on some of my favorite sites or some other kind of news sites, you know. Uh, Red Sox, UVA baseball, basketball, all the stuff that has my heart. But when I become aware of what I'm doing, it gets interesting. In the moment of awareness, there are some other possibilities and some areas to explore. If I would withdraw myself from the objects of my wanting, you know, these surfing objects, whatever you want to call them, and bring my awareness to what's going on inside me right now, 
turning into my experience, I often discover there's a low level of anxiety. It's driving me to what I sometimes call the comfort sites on the web. You know, I'm working, working, and I'm not feeling the anxiety. Next thing you know, I'm off like on, you know, some sports website. So the challenge is, you know, can I be with what my direct experience is right now? What's going on in my body? Can I be with it fully? Can I actually feel the agitation that's, that's beginning to uh, uh, create a little anxiety? You know, can I feel it without running away? You know, and trying to dull it out on these, on these other sites. You know, can I, can I come to understand it, appreciate it? Appreciate how the energy of fear is trying to, you know, drive me to some relief. Give me some comfort out there, you know. So that anxious energy, in a way, it's kind of loving me. It's, you know, it's, it's pushing me to, to something that might bring me comfort. And down below it all, what's going on is really kind of survival-oriented. I mean, the, the energy inside wants me to be successful. It wants me to be responsible. It wants me to, to have status in the tribe, to get things done, to not be cast into the wilderness where I'd perish, where I'd be eaten alive. I mean, that's the kind of thing that's going on in the brain. Of course it's not. I mean, it's crazy. But that's what's going on. I mean, our lives are not threatened often, sometimes. But these energies, these energies of survival, they just keep rocking on. And so a lot of this practice is we're right out there on the edge of evolution, working with these energies, finding new ways of being with them so we're not constantly fighting with each other over resources and all the outcomes, we know what they are. So when, when I'm able to withdraw my attention from this, from, from these comfort sites, and feel what's going on, well, there are some choices there. I can go back to the comfort site, or I can feel fully that experience that's bubbling up inside me. And when you, when you see through a process over time, confidence develops. Withdrawing from the object, coming back to the... The, the experience of one of these energies, watching it grow, flower, pass away with some equanimity, without resistance. You know, you start getting that taste of purification. You can do this. The object of life doesn't have to be to try to line everything up to be pleasant. There's a sweetness in purification and the ability to, to be with in a kindly, understanding way, some of these difficult energies. So let's, let's try a, just a little reflection. And it's, it'll be a reflection on withdrawing energy from something. And let's use, um, we could use something that we're aversive to or something that we want, but let's go with wanting. So settle in, take a few deep breaths. Just bring yourself back into this body. Let go all these words. Reconnecting with the aliveness. However that's manifesting. Now bring to, so bring to mind something that you want. And for those of you that are enlightened and don't want anything, just make something up. Bring something to mind. Could be anything. A food, maybe a new car, some new really cool technology, some techno gizmo. Maybe that special person George Clooney, Lady Gaga, whoever, you know? Whatever lights your fire, 
and really kind of feel, get close to it, connect with it, get a felt sense of what this object of your desire is like. What does it feel like? What does it taste like? It can be as X-rated as you need. Spend some moments just really all your attention on this object that you want. How it will make your life better. You want it. Withdraw your attention from that object and put it back inside yourself. See if you can experience the wanting directly, the, the arc of wanting and how it changes. You know, is there... Pleasantness, unpleasantness, agitation, pleasantness with agitation, you know, just exploring. When we withdraw our, our, from the object of our wanting or our aversion, we get a, we get a, a kind of full exploration of whatever that energy is directly, unadulterated. All right, so open your eyes. Maybe you got a little, a little taste of it. Um, but you'll have lots of opportunities to try this during your practice, um, both wanting and aversion. Another strategy that I'm partial to is utilizing spaciousness. For example, I just, I just described the desire for these comfort sites on, on the Internet. You know, that covers over the underlying, underlying anxiety. With an accent on spaciousness, you can play a little bit with the camera angle of your experience. You can have a broad, you can kind of, you can toggle to a broader camera angle, so to speak. Feeling the spaciousness, that the grand, vast spaciousness that holds this bubbling of anxiety. You can feel the anxiety directly. You can then feel the space around it that holds it all, that, that, that spaciousness, that awareness, that knows, but is unmoved. And in that vast spaciousness, that anxiety or whatever the energy is, can get as big as it wants because the pasture is bigger. It can play out, run free in a large pasture. In that large pasture, whole solar systems are being born and dying. So we can rest in that spacious awareness for a while. And we can toggle back into the direct experience of anxiety. And when we're in that vast awareness, we can still, in the back of that and in the corner of that, we can still experience that anxiety. But maybe my favorite conceptualization, and it's similar to these, is that put forward by the Korean Zen master Shanul in the 12th century. And he taught his students what he called tracing back the radiance. And that's really what you all are doing here. He said it doesn't matter. Whatever is in your heart, mind, body, hatred, lust, whatever, just start there. Experience it directly without judgment in a kindly way. Receive those sensations, emotions, thoughts as they are. Whatever you receive with equanimity in a kindly way will change. Because everything does. That's the game here in creation. It might intensify for a while, but it's going to change. 
And under patient equanimity, it will dissolve. So sometimes it may drop into the, to, to the next configuration. And if we stay with that with, kindly, with a kindly patience, it may drop into something else. And eventually it opens up into this luminous, radiant heart. If we're patient enough, long enough, with enough equanimity. I, my favorite one to use is my challenging energy du jour which is planning. I, I plan a lot. Anybody else do that? You know, you sit here and just, you know. It's really the desire, again, it's a desire for this organism wants to live forever, so it's trying to line things up so it'll all work out comfortably forever. But if I notice that, I, I can go inside and just feel, oh gee, there's a little anxiety behind this planning. You know, it's not, it's not a peaceful feeling generally, unless it's something I'm really enthusiastic about and excited about and just can't wait to get into, which often happens. So sitting with this anxiety, all right, sometimes it'll kind of open to something more profound, a deeper fear, you know? a primal fear even, kind of layers of fear into this primal fear, this desire for existence forever. But if I'm able to stay with it patiently long enough, it eventually dissolves into this kind of luminous, connected radiance. So it's we're tracing back Tracing back the radiance is what Chanel would say. And over time, as I said before, confidence develops. The nervous system learns the pathway back. We've done this. This is familiar territory. The nervous system knows what to do. We have some equanimity with this. And sometimes the clouds, they, they just lift quickly. Bam! It just opens up. Another time, and other times, lots of time and patience are required. And then sometimes even then, it just stays all murky and difficult and unpleasant. That's just the way it is. But tomorrow's another day. You know? Ajahn Chah, the legendary Thai farce master, he had his flavor of tracing back the radiance. And, he, and in this, he muses on the nature of suffering. And he says, there are two kinds of suffering. The suffering that leads to more suffering and the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. The first is the pain of grasping after fleeting pleasures and aversion for the unpleasant, the continual struggle of most people day after day. It's the first suffering. Second suffering, he says, is the suffering which comes when you allow yourself to feel fully the constant change of experience. Pleasure, pain, joy, and anger without fear or with withdrawal. The suffering of our experience leads to inner fearlessness and peace. The suffering of our experience leads to inner fearlessness and peace. That's guaranteed if you practice long enough. Inner fearlessness and peace. Another very short story. One of the monastery's old monks had become a hermit living a two-and-a-half-day hike over difficult mountain peaks. Many visitors made the trek to receive advice and teachings from this old, wise monk. He was reputed to know just what each visitor needed. Prior to giving instruction, the hermit asked the visitor, he asked them, he made them, or asked them to promise to promise not to tell anyone what advice or instruction he or she specifically received. After the promise was made, the hermit would simply ask, 
what are you not willing to pay attention to? What are you not willing to pay attention to? This was the only thing he'd ever say to, to everyone who was seeking help. And many of the visitors, they were perplexed by this. But by the time they walked the two and a half days back out of the mountains, they invariably had praise for this hermit who, who gave them just the instruction they needed. Perfect, just for them. So what are you not willing to pay attention to? So tonight, I tried to offer a brief look at some of these challenging energies you'll encounter in your life and in your spiritual practice. I offered you a, maybe, a, for some of you, a slightly new perspective on those energies. A softer, more compassionate appreciation for the deepest intentions of these energies, this organism, this love for itself, the limbic love of the organism for itself. These energies, they, they, they're arising to try to protect you, bring you comfort, keep you around for a long time. It's creation loving itself. And yes, they're misguided at times. And if, and if you follow them and become devotees of them, they will wreak havoc in your life. And we looked at the acronym RAIN for working with them. We talked a little bit near the end about bringing some spacious, you know, paying attention to the vast awareness that holds the, these phenomena as they, as they move. And I highlighted the Buddha's articulation of the luminous heart-mind. It's all of our birthright. It's sometimes not readily available to you, but it is there. You all have access and can cultivate access to this luminous heart-mind that has a knowing quality, a deep tranquility. It's unruffled by anything. It's infused with compassion and love. And as you sit here and do your basic practice and trace back the radiance over and over, building your confidence little by little, you'll come to see that you're really already there. You'll get to know, you'll sense that that radiance is always there. And so this practice is really a variety of ways, a, a variety of remembrances of that radiance and a variety of ways to help you navigate your way home again. And I'll close by just a few words from Whitman's uh, Song of the Open Road, just a few, few words. Pausing, searching, receiving, contemplating, gently, but with undeniable will, divesting myself of the holds that would hold me, I inhale great drafts of space. The east and the west are mine, and the north and the south are mine. I am larger, better than I thought. I did not know I held so much goodness. I am larger, better than I thought. I did not know I held so much goodness. So thank you for your attention. And let's just sit for just a minute.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.